The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. I would love for you to go ahead and open your Bible, if you have it with you today, to Romans chapter 1. We're really just going to jump right in. Romans chapter 1 is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible for lots of reasons, and I'm excited to talk to you about that today. And beyond what I'm excited to talk to you about, my hope and my prayer for you today is that you would be transformed by the fullness of the gospel that's found in Romans chapter 1. Because that's the reason we do this. That's the reason we read all of these things. This isn't just for knowledge and information, but this is, this is meant to transform us. This is meant to change the way that we are. And I hope that you'll see both the work of Jesus and the depths of our sin that requires that work. This is a heavy, heavy, heavy chapter, and you'll see why the more we get into that today. Paul begins his letter with a series of introductions. First, he tells us a little bit, a very little bit, a very small bit about who he is. He tells us who Jesus is, and he tells us about Jesus's gospel. Then he takes a few moments, and he tells us about the church in Rome. And then lastly, he introduces us to the problem of humanity. The word that we use for that is sin. He introduces us to what's really wrong with the world. So let's read. This is Romans chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. Paul's just telling us who he is. He's giving us his credentials about why he's writing this letter. What, what authorizes him to write this letter? What do we know about Paul that gives him the right to write this letter to the church at Rome to tell them all of these things? And it's really simple, and we're going to do this a lot today. This is uh, just going to read the text. He's a slave of Christ Jesus. He's a slave of Christ. He, is, he has been chosen by God to be an apostle. He's been chosen by God. He's been sent out to preach God's good news. And that's one of my favorite things about this. Paul's not teaching his good news. Paul's not saying something that starts and ends with him. Paul is telling the church in Rome God's good news. This is coming from God. If you have your resource guide with you, um, talks a little bit about who Paul was. And I'm just going to read this out of here. I know you can read, but I want to read this out of here because we need to remember, we need to have some context for who Paul is. Saul, or Paul, was born in the city of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. He was a Jew and at a young age, he was sent to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel. Now, if you read this in your resource guide, if you're looking and following along in version, you'll see all of those things in there. And the thing that I want you to see is after the vast majority of the sentences or, or, or the paragraph or the section, we put the text in the Bible where we know this from. Okay, this is important for us. Gamaliel was a Pharisee, an expert in religious law, and respected by all the people. As a student of Gamaliel, he was carefully trained in Jewish law and customs and was zealous 
to follow God in all that he did. This zeal, this zeal that Paul felt for the Lord led Paul to persecute Christians, arresting them, imprisoning them, and even killing them. And in fact, Paul was present when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was killed. You can read about that in Acts chapter 7. Paul's mission to kill sent him to Damascus. And while he was on this road to Damascus, instead of going to Damascus to persecute Christians, he met the resurrected Jesus and was converted to Christianity. And while he was in Damascus, he immediately began to preach that Jesus was God's son. And Paul returned to Jerusalem and was met by skeptic believers, which we can imagine that that would take place. After a period of time, Paul left for Caesarea and eventually returned to his hometown. Paul then went on a series of missionary journeys, primarily to non-Jews called Gentiles. So we hear that word, that's a kind of a Bible word, and it just means people who aren't Jews. It means everyone else. Paul was a tent maker by trade, and his primary method of teaching the gospel was to go into a city, and he would begin in the synagogue. Like we talked last week, Christianity at this point in history was still a sect of Judaism. So Paul would start off in the synagogue because, because those were his people. He would have used language and talked about the customs of the Jews in ways that they would have understood, and then he would have talked about Jesus. So he'd either start in the synagogue or he would go where Jewish people met to pray. Paul was arrested multiple times. On five separate occasions, he received 39 lashes from Jewish leaders. He was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned once. He was shipwrecked three times. And he spent a night and a day adrift on the open sea. Imagine that for your resume. He was burdened with the responsibilities and the concerns for the churches. My hunch is, as, as a pastor who just, just leads one church, I can't imagine the burden and the weight of responsibility that Paul felt for multiple churches. How much he was kept awake at night. And according to tradition, Paul was beheaded in Rome. So one of the things that we're going to see as we read through this book is Paul's desire is to go to Rome. And he gets there, just not the way that he hoped. He was actually killed there. Next few verses, these are verses 2 to 5 from Romans 1. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his early life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. So now Paul is telling us a little bit about who Jesus is. He's reminding them of Jesus's background. And what he says is, Jesus was talked about in the Old Testament. This isn't something new. He's not out of the blue. He says that he was born into King David's family line and he was shown to be God's son when he was raised from the dead. And he is our Lord. Paul is reminding the Gentiles, the church in Rome, who Jesus is. And then verses 6 and 7. And you are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. I'm writing to all of you who are called by God and are called to be his own holy people. 
May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. See, what he's doing is he's telling the church at Rome that they're included in something. He's telling them that they are a part of a much bigger story than what they think. I think this is such a great reminder for us that we need to be reminded that we are a part of a larger story. We are a part of God's larger story. Because if we're not careful, we can, we can make our story about us. We can reduce Christianity. We can reduce the faith. We can reduce the things that we do in response to God to just us. And we can remove ourselves from this bigger picture, from this bigger context. We can forget that Jesus was talked about long ago. We can forget that we have a part to play, not just, not just in our local church, but in the local church, capital C, in Scotts Bluff and Gearing. But I want you to notice something here. Paul begins telling us something. He says, basically, this is a qualified inclusion. It is not without cost or expectation. We see that in verse 5. Through Christ, God's given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done so that they will believe and obey him. See, this is, this is the cost for us as Christians. This is our responsibility. This is our response. This is our reaction to the free gift that God has given us. We, we have to do something. We get to do something. He says it's actually a privilege to do this. We get to be a part of it. And when we believe and we obey, we bring glory to God's name. Verses 8 and 9. Let me say first that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith in him is being talked about all over the world. God knows how often I pray for you day and night. I bring you and your needs in prayer to God, whom I serve with all my heart by spreading the good news about his son. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I've heard all about you. We talked about this last week. Paul has yet to go to Rome. Yet strangely, in chapter 16, where we read the first half of it last week, he, he writes to them and includes names in them as if he knows them. A few of them he does, Priscilla and Aquila, he knows. He spent time in prison with someone. He knew Rufus and he knew Rufus's mother. But for the most part, Paul doesn't have a relationship with these people. He's never met them before. So when he says, I've heard about you, that's what he means. Their faith has been demonstrated in such a way. Their belief and their obedience in response to what God has done for them has been demonstrated in such a way that, that Paul's heard about them. And what Paul says is, I thank God for you. What you are doing is you are demonstrating this cost. You're demonstrating this expectation. Let's read verses 10 to 15. One of the things I always pray about is the opportunity, pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come at last to see you. For I long to visit you so I can bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. When we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith, but I also want to be encouraged by yours. I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to visit you, but I was prevented until now. 
I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit, just as I've seen among other Gentiles. For I have a great sense of obligation to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and the uneducated alike. So I'm eager to come to you in Rome, too, to preach the good news. So what Paul's saying is, I've heard about you, and now I want to come see I've heard about you, and now I want to come see. I want to see for myself what all of these people are telling me about. As Priscilla and Aquila and I, we made tents together in Corinth. And they were telling me of all of the things that were happening at the church in Rome. I want to come and I want to see those things for myself. I want to bring you spiritual gifts to help you grow strong in the Lord. If you want to know what that looks like, you can look in Ephesians chapter 4. I want to encourage you, and I want to be encouraged by you. I love that. I want to encourage you, and I want to be encouraged by you. See, being together as believers, when we gather together, this is, a, this is meant to be a reciprocal relationship. And here's what that means. I have something to offer you, and you have something to offer me. This is a reciprocal relationship. The primary encouragement that you give me is knowing that I'm not alone. As I reflected on this text throughout the week, I think about all of the gatherings that I've been a part of since 1995 when I became a follower of Jesus. Think of the unity and love demonstrated towards me from other people. I think about the ways that all of my questions about baptism were tolerated by my small group for months and months and months and months. Essentially, it was the same exact question asked 82 million different ways. And I think about the way they encouraged me to ask those questions. I think of the patience that, that this body has shown me in the last five years, especially as you've allowed me to kind of find my voice and find my person and find my identification as the pastor here at Westway Christian Church. And I want you to have the same relationship. When you come together, whether it's here on a Sunday morning or it's in small group or it's in Sunday school class or it's having dinner together, I, I want that encouragement to be real in your life as well. I don't want you to just give encouragement. I want you to be able to receive it. And then lastly, Paul introduces us to the problem of humanity. And he does it in a really interesting way. This is, this is verse 16, verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. And again, just reading through and reflecting on this, these first 15 verses, he talks about who he is, he talks about how G who Jesus is, and he talks about the good news that comes from Jesus, and he talks about Rome. And then he kind of throws this sentence in here that is essentially, and I'm not embarrassed of this good news, which is a really weird sentence at the end of a bunch of really good news. Why would anyone be embarrassed or ashamed 
of what Jesus has done for them. Well, I think what he's really doing is he's laying the groundwork for what he's going to say next. I'm not embarrassed. I'm not ashamed. Why would we be embarrassed or ashamed of the good news? God has saved us. What would there be in what we've read so far to be embarrassed of? And then verse 17, here's what's happening. Um, And the NLT really only implies this. We had quite a bit of conversation about this this week in elders' meetings and in other conversations. But here's, here's here's what verse 17 is saying. He's saying that God is righteous and he makes us righteous through faith. God's righteousness is given to us through the work of Jesus. So we're not bringing any righteousness into this. The righteousness that that we have is only because God is righteous. And again, this is the gospel. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We should be excited about it. But then there's the rest of chapter 1. And as I've been, again, thinking about and praying, I think there are two mindsets we need to have when we read the rest of chapter 1. The first mindset is a sense of relief. Here's what we're going to see in the next several verses. Humanity is in deep, deep, deep trouble. Deep trouble. Romans 1, 18 to 32 is an accurate diagnosis of the problem. And interestingly enough, this is actually good news for us. When we read the rest of this, we're being diagnosed with with good news because an accurate diagnosis is important. At our house, we're coming up on an almost two-year anniversary of Anne going to the hospital at the end of August and then embarking on what would become a two-month journey to learn that she had breast cancer again. We go home from church one Sunday. She's not feeling well. She goes to bed. This is at the end of August 2020. Goes to bed, isn't feeling well. Isn't feeling well the next day, stays home from work. Isn't feeling well the next day, and she says, okay, if I'm not feeling well tomorrow morning at this time, I'm going to the doctor. We're going to go see what's going on. So she wakes up on Wednesday, not feeling well, She's feeling dehydrated, thinks she has heat exhaustion, and then something else physically wasn't right with her. So because we were coming out of COVID, I took her up to, um, took her up to the hospital, had to drop her off at the door, which was awful. Get home, she calls me within 10 minutes and says, um, they're going to do a biopsy today. And I said, well, okay, what happened to dehydration? What, what happened to all of these other things? And she was like, basically, yeah, they don't care anything about that. So go back up to the hospital. I think she ended up having two or three, like, I don't, okay, three. I don't remember. Those two months for me were a blur of back and forth to regional West as as she did tests and scans and biopsies and, th- and, and thing after thing after thing after thing 
because they couldn't quite know enough that they could clear her. But they just had this suspicion that something was there. And, and maybe that would drive you mad. It drove me a little mad. Right? Because you just want answers. And what we wanted in the midst of all of that was we wanted an accurate diagnosis. If it took four months, like, don't care. We needed to know what was wrong with her. So in November, as we, things are always weird the way they pan out. Second week in November, we drove down to Oklahoma to see our kids. As we're in the car, we get the call from Westway that Pastor Shane passed away. Get to our daughter's house. We'd been there for maybe 15 minutes. Her phone rings, and I hear her say, do I need to get my husband for this call? Walk into the room and breast cancer. See, this was an accurate diagnosis. And it was terrible. And never once did we think that Dr. Bjorling hated us because he gave us an accurate diagnosis. And that, that's going to be really important in a minute. As we read through the way Paul diagnoses our culture. See, there are going to be some people that think Christians hate them. There are going to be some people that think God hates them because of the diagnosis. But if we didn't receive that accurate diagnosis, we never would have known how to treat it. We wouldn't have known what to do. We would have tried to, we would have just given her more water, right? Because she was dehydrated. And one of the things that we found, and Dr. Holloway, God bless him. He said, it's a really good thing we found this when we did, because if it had been, if it had been a few months from now, this would have been much worse. So we were so thankful for an accurate diagnosis. And here's the second thing. So the first thing is we have to have a sense of relief. Like uh, we've been properly diagnosed. Paul is going to properly diagnose us and that ought to give us relief. And then here's the second thing. We ought to have a sense of humility. See, we ought to remember that because this is, this is what our life once was. When we encounter people who aren't in a relationship with Jesus, who haven't, in, who haven't encountered the, the, the good news that Jesus has saved them, we ought to be humble. We ought to take our responsibility humbly in diagnosing them of what the problem is of humanity. And these next verses are the kinds of verses that we just have to accept the Bible as it is. We can't, we can't wiggle around it. We just have to read it. This is verse 18. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God. But they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what he was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. 
And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-loving God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. See, these, these first few verses, as, as, as Paul begins his diagnosis, right? That's, this is Paul's bedside manner, right? You know when you go see the doctor, and the doctor for a few minutes kind of like, how's it going? How are you feeling? Ask you that, like, bedside manner. Setting up what you're going to hear next. Okay, so Anne, you came in back in August, and we did this, and we did this, and then in September we did this and this, and then in October we did this and this and this and this. This is setting it up for us. See, God is real, and he's revealed himself to everyone. And I wonder if you've seen the images from the Webb telescope over the past month. I wonder if you have had the opportunity to see how much they can show you about God's majesty and God's divine nature. What they reveal about the reality of who God is. But see, that's not all God has done. He wrote his law on the hearts of humanity. And this is, this is like the, the last vestiges as human beings of made in God's image. We read in chapter, um, in chapter 1 of Genesis that God has made man in his own image. And as, and as much as our sin has tarnished that and destroyed that, there are these, these little strains, these little, I call them vestiges of being made in God's image. And, and God's law on our hearts is revealed mostly through conscience. We know when we're doing something wrong. That's by design. And what we need to know as we read this is God's judgment is not some senseless, out-of-the-blue action. Sometimes we look at what God does and, and we see how God treats humanity. And we see this punishment and we think, like, God just, God just flew off the handle one day. I wonder if there are any parents in the room who've ever over-disciplined your kids. We're not going to call Child Protective Services on you. My hand's up. Have you ever over-disciplined your children? Kids? I could ask you, have you ever been over-disciplined? Every single time, Right? See, God's not, God's not over-disciplining us. God's not, God's, not, God's not disciplining us because he had a bad day at work. God's not disciplining us strongly because someone pulled out in front of him on the drive or the train was too long in Scott's Bluff. God's judgment is completely premeditated completely premeditated, completely planned. It's completely warranted. As we read through these verses, what we see is we've rejected God. God's made himself known to us, and we have rejected him. We've created our own version of him, and then we worship idols. See, we all know that there's a God, but we are estranged from him because of our sinfulness. We choose to not believe him. He showers his goodness on us, and our response to his good gifts is rejection. 
This is our reaction. And what does God do? Verses 24 to 27. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. That phrase, God abandoned them, is a really, really interesting phrase. And what it really means is, is God gives us everything that we want. We follow our hearts. We do whatever is right in our own eyes. I wonder if you remember that phrase from when we read through the book of Judges together. See, we have absolutely convinced ourselves, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that if we could just do whatever we wanted to do, we just had ultimate freedom. If we were free f- from the shackles of religion, if we were free from the shackles of rules and regulations and guardrails and ancient morality, we have convinced ourselves that life would just be great. Like if everybody just followed their heart, everything would be fine. But isn't that an incredible lie? This past week, I don't know if it was a mistake. I'm always cautious when I mention things that I watch. This is not an endorsement. This past week, Ann and I watched this show on Netflix called Trainwreck, Woodstock 99. And it was a train wreck. Chaos and destruction on full display. And as I was reading through this text again, specifically verse 24, let me read it. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desire. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's body. My first thought after reading verse 24 again for the millionth time this week was, that was Woodstock 99. Like the first thing that came to my mind. It's just a celebration of chaos and destruction and these people just like doing whatever feels right. And it was anarchy. And my guess is I asked Anne a thousand times, what were they thinking? There's no one in charge. There's no rules. It's just chaos. See, we think that life without God leads to peace, love, and harmony, but reality paints a much different picture, doesn't it? Life without God always leads to chaos, death, and destruction. Always. And maybe it takes a while. Although Woodstock 99, it was pretty, pretty much kicked off about four hours in and only got worse. 
And I know that there are people in this room who completely disagree. You completely disagree that what we need is, is rules and guidelines. And we need God, we need an other to tell us what's right and what's wrong. Because after all, we're not so bad, right? Compared to everyone else, we are not so bad. See that again, there's the cultural lie that we all fall into. Which is why often when, when, when I talk about Romans chapter 1, and it's been a little while, what I hear is how, how our church hates gay people or how I hate gay people. And what's so fascinating about that is I never have anyone come up to me after a message like this and talk to me about how I've made them feel by the next set of sins that we're going to read. And I think kind of what's at play in the midst of this is as Christians, we tend to think that some sins are worse than others. We tend to categorize sin, and, and usually that categorization looks like this. Sexual sins are really bad, and Scripture talks about that, so, so there's an aspect of truth to that. The Bible tells us that sexual sins are worse than other sins because they're a sin against ourselves, right? Which is why if you've ever been involved in a sexual sin, that's why I feel so crappy. Because it's not just a, it's not just a vertical sin, but it's a sin against yourself. And that, that's by design. Your body is designed to feel that way. But I think second off, because we, we kind of interpret that as, as, as it's much worse, we tend to think that our sins, and again, we're going to read the list, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, we tend to think that those aren't such a big deal. Which again is why none of you are going to come up to me today and say, man, you really made me feel bad about greed. You must really hate people who are greedy. Right? That never happens. But it's the same list. And this gospel, too, is something that we are called to not be ashamed or embarrassed of. We should not be ashamed or embarrassed of this. This is, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is a proper diagnosis. And one of the ways that God judges people is by giving them everything they want. This is God's judgment. See, we see this word abandoned, and what we think is that God has rejected us. But here's reality. We've rejected him. So God has given us over to our sin. Let's read verses 28 to 32. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do the things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. Wait, do you see that? Do you hear this list? Do you see how long this list is? They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break the promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. See, it's this, it's this second list that, that really captures everyone, doesn't it? And sometimes as Christians, like, we want to focus like so hard on the section right above this. 
And my guess is they're like some of us today, like you really, like you would love for me just to camp on the verses about men and women. But that's, that's only partially the gospel. Humanity's sin doesn't begin and end there. It continues on through the, through the sins that you and I do on a daily basis. And let's make no mistake, those, those sins are equally worthy of God's judgment. God's anger is premeditated towards me because of the anger that I deal with. God's anger is premeditated towards you because of your envy or your malicious behavior or your gossip. Our minds are weakened and then we include other people in our sin. And what happens then is we encourage their destruction. Again, watch, watching, this, watching this show, it was like, they, they called it like mob mentality throughout the show. Like it kind of started off and this is debatable. I think it started with a lot of people. But, but once it got going, like everybody just joined and everyone was encouraged to join in. And, and isn't that true of our sin? And this is when our sinfulness really kicks in. As we read and reflect and we study on this, um, the first thing I think we kind of do is we get mad at God. See, God becomes a tyrant because his ethic and his justice stands in opposition of our own internal compass and sense of right and wrong. Here's what that means. See, we think we know better than God. We think we know how the universe ought to run. And, and God's ethic is different than ours. So what we do is, is we get mad at God because he has a different set of standards than us, right? We read through these things and we get mad at God because his standards are separate than ours. They're unreasonable, they're unloving, they're out of date. And basically our accusation, this accusation is God just doesn't want me to have any fun. Because after all, I'm not hurting anyone. That's kind of the first place we go. And then once we kind of live in that space for a few minutes, we move on to the next set of accusations. And and these ones are sort um, sort of my favorite. Why would God do this? Why would God allow that? Why would God allow people to do that? Have you ever thought that? Why does God allow all this chaos, death, and destruction? God shouldn't do that. God should stop us. Well, I mean, he should stop everybody else. Right? God should stop us. God's not fair. God's not just. And what we do is we heap accusation after accusation upon God. And now... God is a tyrant because he fails to enforce his ethic in a way that agrees with my moral compass. See that? See how sly that is? God's not, God's not running his kingdom like I would if I were him. So now he's a tyrant because he's not stopping all of these sinners from doing all of these bad things. And then the third accusation. 
Jesus is the wrong way. I recently had, had this very conversation with a friend. And at the end, what I said was, it's also hard to accept the full forgiveness offered in Christ alone. We are a seriously bipolar people. We want God to show justice and mercy at the same time. And when he does it in the person of Jesus, what do we say? Well, not like that. I want God's justice. I want God's mercy. I want God's righteousness. Here's Jesus. Well, not like that. That's not what I wanted. I want all of those things, but I don't want Christ. And here's the reality. Each of these accusations take us further and further from God. And this is the fullness of the gospel. The gospel is not merely accept Jesus and go to heaven. We've been talking about that for five years. The gospel is if you are a sinner in desperate need of salvation, and God offers you his righteousness through the person of Jesus Christ. And in order to accept that, in order to be included, in order to participate, you have to believe and obey. See, you have a role to play. You have a responsibility. Billy Graham said this, being a Christian is more than just an instantaneous conversion. It's a daily process whereby you grow to be more and more like Christ. See, being a Christian is a daily process. This morning I got back from my run and we have this, this gravel space between our house and the next house over. And this year for whatever, well, I don't, I almost, yeah, I almost said for whatever reason, but I know the reason. This year, for whatever reason, it is especially overgrown by weeds. And here's the reason, because I didn't go out and take care of it. That's the reason. So I get back from my run this morning and I kind of start pulling weeds and I'm like, you know, I'll bet if I just methodically, just one time a day for three to five minutes, if I just methodically pulled weeds one time a day for three to five minutes in a week, those weeds would all be gone. Isn't that just like the Christian life? See, if we grew in a daily process to be more and more like Christ, we would be more and more like Christ. That's what it means to believe. That's what it means to obey. This is my work. This is my effort. And that doesn't save me because Jesus has done that. But I have a responsibility to pull weeds and not just run my lawnmower over the top of them. Because that doesn't take care of the weeds. It makes it look shorter. It makes me feel better. But just like my sin, if I just, if I just mow over my sin, and I don't deal with it. If I don't root it out of my life, I'm never going to be changed. And the only way that's going to happen is if I truly understand the problem of humanity. And not what anyone else is telling me is wrong with humanity, but what the Bible says. And what Paul's doing is he's reminding the Gentiles of this in Romans to help them see that. 
They're now included in the salvation of God. And their former way of life separated them from him. What they were owed from God was judgment. Premeditated judgment. What we are owed from God because of our sin is judgment. And what God does is ridiculous. He gives us grace. He offers us his son, Jesus. And this is where their story becomes our story. Romans 1 tells us that the way to be made right with God is only through Jesus. It's not my righteousness. It's not my good works. It's not the fact that someone else is a worse sinner than I am that gains me entry into heaven. It's only through Jesus. And this text today accurately reveals to us, to me, my own brokenness. It accurately reveals to me my own sin. It accurately reveals to me my own rejection and my rebellion against God, and it does the exact same thing to you. And maybe you disbelieve the diagnosis. We could have walked out of Bjorling's office and been like, we don't believe that. She was just dehydrated. We don't believe that. Maybe she had COVID. We don't believe that. Maybe this was the problem, or that was the problem. But you know what the problem was? She had cancer. And the only fix was what we did. As human beings, we have a problem, and that problem is sin. Cover it up and try and, try and fix it with other things, and you're not going to do it. It's not going to work. It's only Jesus. And see, this is not something that's to be ashamed of. This is not something to be embarrassed of. We're not embarrassed that we went to the doctor and found medical healing. That would be ridiculous. I'm not embarrassed that Jesus tells me that I'm a sinner. Because, like, I get, I know. And probably you know. Jesus is diagnosing us. Jesus is telling us what's wrong with us. And it's not something to be ashamed of or embarrassed of. It's something to celebrate. It's something to be happy about. Because like us, once we knew what we were dealing with, we could deal with it. Once we know what we're dealing with when it comes to our sin, Jesus is going to deal with it. And we just have to trust him. Each week at Westway Christian Church, one of the things that we do is we, we, celebrate this, we celebrate this together. We're, hap- we're not embarrassed or ashamed. We celebrate. We are excited that we have been properly diagnosed and we have been properly healed by Jesus. And we do that by having communion together, by remembering the sacrifice Because there was a cost for me to not be ashamed or embarrassed of the gospel. There was a cost, and Jesus paid that cost. I love that. I love that all I have to do is believe and obey. And that's what we do here on Sunday mornings together is we celebrate the work that Jesus has done. So you can open up the top piece. This is Christ's body. 
which has been given for you. Take and eat. And then this is Christ's blood, which has been poured out for you. Take and drink. Pray with me. God, I'm thankful that you are not embarrassed or ashamed to tell us what's wrong with us. I'm thankful that you are not embarrassed or ashamed to send your son Jesus to die for us. You didn't just bury your head in the sand over our sin. You fixed it. I pray, God, that we would embrace the fullness of the gospel. That we would see you reveal to us what's wrong with us. And that we would choose to be saved by you. We would seek you. We would see you at work. And we would be transformed by it. That we would not remain in the state of deadness that we would not remain in a state of rebellion or rejection, but that we would believe and obey and that you would receive glory by it. And it's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen.